This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Tung Vu, professor of political science at the University of Oregon. I also direct the U.S.-Vietnam Research Center here, uh, which we founded in 2018-2019 uh, to promote uh, education and research on uh, contemporary Vietnam, on Vietnamese history and politics, and on uh, the Republic of Vietnam and the Vietnamese American community. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Uh, I'm delighted to think about the conference that you organized last month in the University of Oregon in Eugene, and thank you for having me there. At the event, I feel like the attendees were able to really debate openly and freely about subjects that traditionally get us all very heated as the diaspora. So thank you for that. And can you tell me a little bit about this event and how you began to organize something like that? Yeah, uh, first, uh, thank you for coming. I really enjoy your participation uh, in the event, asking questions and also helping us to have fun, you know, in the uh, in the last uh, on the last evening at my house. So really appreciate that uh, you and and your friend uh, Mr. Trinhoi. Uh Well, yeah. So back to the event. Uh, we actually planned it for more than a year, and uh, we uh, the occasion uh, is the you know upcoming 58th anniversary of the end of the civil war in Vietnam and the birth of the Vietnamese American community. Right, so that that's I think that's an important occasion for all of us to uh, you know take some time to ref reflect right on our path uh, in the last uh, half a century, right? Two generations of Vietnamese uh, spanning uh, you know two continents across the ocean to think about you know uh, how to go forward, you know, uh, given what we know about the community, uh, how we have developed in the last 50 years, uh, what how we are doing right now, and and the, the current tensions or problems that you hint at in your introduction, how to, to move forward. You know, kind of imagine uh, how we would look like, you know, uh, 50 years from now. The, the mark of 50 year uh, is an important occasion for us to do that. And so that's why we plan uh, uh, like two or three uh, activities or, or events. And it's not just, you know, this conference, but there are other conferences that we have been thinking about, depending on the possibility of funding. But, you know, like we came up with the idea and we discussed with the uh, U.S. Institute of Peace uh, based in Washington, D.C., and they supported it and we um, in a part of it. And I had to figure out, you know, because organizing a conference like this one is very expensive. Uh, we, it costs about cost us about sixty five thousand uh, dollars 
to to organize the conference. So I need to kind of you know come up with the money first, the funding to uh, actually you know get that into planning. So we apply for uh, for uh, for the Global Peace Program uh, at the University of Oregon, which provides um, funding for activities by faculty and students uh, that support the mission of you know peace and social justice. So we apply for it, and and I got it. You know, like uh, to pay for the bulk of the the conference. That's when we can start. You know, we could start uh, organizing, planning, and so on. And it took uh, maybe more than six months to kind of you know um, invite people, and some people you know rejected us. You know, other people accepted. Uh, you know, coming up with the full program, uh, and oftentimes, just like my previous conferences, you know, we had to. Uh, talk to people several times, you know, by email, by phone, going back and forth. People ask, you know, what are you trying to do? You know, uh, what can I say? Uh, are you really open to, uh, you know, frank discussion and so on? So I, I got a lot of, you know, questions back from the community, from the academics too, about uh, about what we intend to do, whether they they can contribute uh, effectively or productively, uh, and whether um, whether you know we 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 can guarantee that you know we we, pro- we we can do what we promise. Like you know, many I am sure many people came to the conference still doubting whether you know they could they could be a- able to speak their minds, and and I had to um, do a lot of you know uh, lack work ground work to to make that happen to so that people actually show up and be open to you know the idea and you know like at the conference we have the uh i have the chance to persuade people right but then you know like if before that you know like i, I just had to pro- make a lot of promises and 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 so uh and try to make people believe that you know it's possible to do that and i had you know this experience before with the the conference we organized in Berkeley, 2016, in which I was able to convince about 18 former Republic of Vietnam, you know, top officials to come, and also the you know the uh, the uh, actors and the writer and the journalists uh, who opposed the Republic of Vietnam government to come as well to speak. So you know, like so, I have done this before, uh, and it was a lot more difficult back then. Then it's not it's uh, for the last one. So I kind of got, you know got some experience and and it helped. Yeah. Just to let the audience know, you organized basically a weekend of all of these academics at the highest institutions throughout the United States to come and have a discussion about where we are as a, the Vietnamese diaspora fifty years later. And there was a lot of different points of views uh, in different directions, uh, but we did manage to have a really lively discussion, but really keep it civil. There was no, um, really nothing crazy. I think it could have been, there could have been a lot of craziness, but somehow uh, everybody kept it very civil and walked out of there. I remember going to the last night's party. We were all in the room at your house, all these rooms, and we were all singing and getting along and uh, different people who had different uh, perspectives were talking to each other. I somehow wish that it could happen on a grander scale and was wondering to myself, 
how could you take this format into a bigger, uh, maybe a stadium or arena is too ambitious and too big, but a bigger where you get hundreds of, of, of Vietnamese diaspora leaders to discuss the same things. I mean, that it was such a beautiful weekend, a beautiful format in the way you did it. Yes, uh, I, I think uh, I benefit from, you know, the training in the academic environment, you know, which uh, fosters, you know, free exchange of ideas uh, without restrictions and so on. So I, I do benefit from that that training that, you know, 20 years of teaching and research uh, in the environment. And I think the university environment also kind of helped me to, uh, you know, to uh, to maintain that that atmosphere right i mean instead of you know like some somewhere in uh, the community uh, which would be more difficult to maintain but but i really benefit from the, in, the university environment now when i think about the cultures of people uh, in asia or the cultures of the western uh, communities um i think that and and i would really like your observation and opinion here when i think about how hierarchical our society is with the uh, with the the way we address our elders and we address their, the kids inside of our families and then i think about how loose and open the western style of communication is mm. i start to think about the way the governments are set up in a very hierarchical ways in asia versus the west and the way that culture set up or is in the West is it's a little bit more open. There's a lot of discussion at the dinner table in Western families. There's uh, this free expression of saying whatever you really think about and how you feel about your day with your parents. In Asian cultures, for the most part, uh, you go home, you have dinner, you don't speak much at the dinner table. And so I think about the way that governments are set up, almost similar to the way the inside of the family structures are set up. And so when I think about your work with talking about the southern government of Vietnam before 1975, we were trying to transition into a democracy, if, if correct me if I'm wrong at all. We we're trying to transition to this democracy, but it didn't quite work. Or if it did, there was this sort of hierarchical way. And I often think to myself when I talk to my um, family or uh, people in um, uh, you know, the community, that perhaps we were never destined to have a democratic society all over Asia. Um, but can you correct that? Can you kind of help me to really go, wait a minute, that's not the right way to look at it. We were working towards a democracy, uh, democracy. And I'm always wondering how much does culture, our Vietnamese culture, get in the way of true ability to express within the family structure all the way up to the government structure? Well, that's a great question, uh, but it's also a difficult question. I'm sure you know, um, uh, in part because you know culture is an evolving thing, and democracy is also you know as as a system, it's also evolves. And as we observe in U.S., you know, democracy, right? There are moments of greatness, and there are also moments of uh, danger, of peril. Right. right. So it's the same with with the Vietnamese system. Even though you know we started out, you know, from you know, uh, colonial background, we had barely a decade to, you know, build a state uh, and uh, a government, right? Uh, so so we, we, we didn't really have much time back then in the Republic of Vietnam. And, and, and so it was undergoing um, a kind of, uh, you know, um, 
transformation, a, a great transformation. Uh, and and we were not alone, right? Throughout Asia, you know, in Burma, in Indonesia, in Thailand, in South Korea, you know, you had, you know, military coups and, you know, government changes and dictatorships and so on throughout Asia, right? But now today, I just spent last summer in Korea, right, South Korea, and and I I, I live in a, 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 a you know democracy right so South Korea does have a democracy Taiwan does have a democracy uh, Indonesia has a democracy even though it's a little bit weaker uh, more more chaotic uh, uh, than than South Korea and you know and, and Taiwan not to mention Japan right so like Asian culture and societies do have the capacity to accommodate you know democratic aspirations and 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 the functioning of democratic forces in in asian uh, societies uh, has been a reality it's not like you know in a dream and uh, or anything but but it it's a reality in many countries in asia and people have adapted adopted democracy and adapted to it over time and it, it's also undergoing, you know, moments of greatness and dangers and so on, just like the U.S. So I, I do believe that, you know, in terms of government system, uh, the Republic of Vietnam was uh, undergoing uh, significant changes uh, with, the, you know, the, uh, the, a very vibrant uh, civil society and, and free press, you know, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, as I have uh, showed in our books, right? Our books on Republic Vietnam uh, do show that there was that, you know, vibrant civil society that uh, rose up to defend uh, civil liberties and the, the free press that, you know, tried to do the same thing as well. Even though, you know, in the context of a savage war, uh, uh, you know, foreign invasion and foreign intervention and so on. So, so, that, so there, there was that, uh, that uh, political uh, transformation. But in terms of the culture of the family, I think it's, uh, it also depends on, on the family too, you know, like um, uh, maybe, you know, what you said about, about uh, the culture in the family, you know, discussion, open discussion at the dinner table. Uh, may be true for most Vietnamese families, but I believe you know that there may be some um, some uh, differences, you know, uh, among the families and in the U.S. especially, you know, with uh, with uh, the kind of environment here, the kind of society here, the kind of you know education that the children get here. Uh, the family, the Vietnamese American families have also been changing a lot too. Uh, and I guess, you know, like you are in your 40s now and I'm in, in your fifth, early 50s and I'm, the, you know, in the same kind of generation. And then we, uh, we, uh, um, we were young enough when we came to America or you were born in America, you know, so you kind of, you know, know uh, you, you are an American, right? And even me, uh, you know, I came to you, the U.S. when I was 25, I was young enough to really understand, you know, the benefits of, you know, open discussion. And the university training helped me uh, in that regard too. So it's, um, so I think it, it's changing and, and there's hope for, you know, like 50 years from now. And, and at the conference, I was trying to, you know, kind of uh, to help 
uh, bridge the gaps between the two generations. You know, the first generations who uh, li- you know grew up in Vietnam, and the second generation who who grew up here. Uh, the cultural differences, you know, there's certainly you know a big gap between the two. And at the conference, we were trying to do that uh, through uh, you know bridging uh, first, you know, like bringing a lot of young people in. To, to the conversation together with the older people, you know, in a, an open environment. And the other thing is to bring academics together with community leaders because the two often don't interact. And academics, you know, kind of, they tend to be younger, they tend to be more, they, you know, they certainly, you know, like to, to be successful in a, an academic environment, you have to be open to discussion, right? That's kind of a part of your job, right? Is to accept uh, you know different viewpoints right uh, yeah so uh, so that that's what we have been tr- we have been trying to do yeah as a political scientist how much hope do you have for vietnam to transition into i'm not saying a full democracy but some semblance of a democracy um i i have a lot of hope uh, even though uh, I see a lot of difficulties uh, for that transition, uh, because the hope comes from the younger generation, uh, as Vietnam is now, Vietnam is now open to the world, right? So, so Vietnamese youth, uh, they learn English, they can uh, receive information in the internet, they see around their country, and they they can see, you know, like where the future of Vietnam should be. And that's the most important thing. I mean, they're going to fight for, and they have to fight. They must fight. If they want that kind of society for Vietnam, they have to fight. They must fight for, for that. And and I have a lot of hope in them as I, you know, I often have, um, I, I uh, have uh, students uh, from Vietnam writing to me or students from Vietnam came to be trained by me here. Like I've had two already and then two more just came this year. So uh, they came to be trained in a PhD program and they want to understand political science and use political science uh, tools to analyze Vietnamese politics. And I do, I do feel that aspirations among the youth in Vietnam for change. But at the same time, you know, we have a, a communist government that's very experienced in, um, you know, uh, ruling, uh, have, you know, keeping control over the population and the society. Uh, so it, it's going to be a difficult uh, road ahead, you know, for, for Vietnam to be uh, transitioned to democracy. Yeah. And, and as I travel down this journey of learning more about government and, and civil sort of lessons about uh, the way we rule societies, sometimes I feel like there's not um, <laughs> the lines are blurred, even in Western governments um, in terms of control and the way we handle uh political dissent uh, it's just not it's not done and carried out the same ways but the effects sometimes are are the same in, in how we control the people uh that's how i feel so you can go to vietnam and 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 certainly not feel the government at all if you're just traveling through and you know and sometimes in the united states i feel like when you're studying sort of like the black communities there's this oppression that we can see yeah. clearly so yeah. none of these systems are are perfect um and i think they're all changing um as 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 we go along that being said i i often wonder and i have friends who ask me what would vietnam be like today if the southern government 
one. Historians are prohibited from, you know, making such uh, counterfactual arguments. Uh, you know, like uh, respected historians don't don't want to make that kind of, uh, of counterfactual arguments. But you know, like just for the for the sake of the conversation, you know, um, I think most people would would agree, and even you know, scholars who uh, who love or hate the Republic of Vietnam, most would agree that they would be like Thailand today, Indonesia today, uh, perhaps you know, South Korea even, uh, depending on you know, like how it worked out. Uh, but 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 it's probably some somewhere you know between Thailand and South Korea today. Uh, if uh, if uh, you know if uh, it had won the war, even you know if it just had uh, not been invaded by North Vietnam, not been conquered by North Vietnam, if it if it had been left alone, then it would be like Thailand or, or South Korea today. Yeah, you know when I think about a culture like Koreans and Japanese, I think I think about a very strict uh, culture that involves integrity. And I'm not saying that the Vietnamese culture doesn't have integrity. I think we're a very warm society. I think we're very nice and we're very, but we also have this thing called uh, or we have this thing called yu yi, right? Mm. We we sort of like live in this sort of warm space of like, you know, push comes to shove, we'll we'll let it go, and we're we're not as strict in the way we, the precision of ruling. Uh, in terms of like the way the Japanese or the Koreans do their guidelines, we are not as strict. And so I think that can bring in a little bit of corruption that brings in a little, we, you know, we, we kind of like straddle on this sort of like, we, it's, it's a, a warm and fuzzy way of doing business. And, and I think at the upper levels of the government today and 50 years, 60 years ago, I think it kind of translates. So when you or anybody says, we could have been like the South Koreans or the Japanese or the Taiwanese. And I know intimately the Taiwanese culture is they're very strict. They're, they're mo their moral compass is sort of Japanese. And I think Koreans are sort of like that too. We come from a, a warmer, you know, a little bit uh, more. Uh, we, 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 um, the word I'm looking for is uh, we, uh, we, there's a back and forth that we allow each other to have. And that sometimes I think inhibits true progress because of integrity what's your opinion on that well there have been scholars who make the same argument about uh you know like like you uh, about the difference between uh, northeastern asia like japan and korea versus southeastern asia like you know vietnam vietnamese or thai or indonesian uh, societies and you know they they make argument like okay so it, it's a trop the tropics right i mean in southeast asia uh, in South Vietnam, certainly uh, less in North Vietnam, but in South Vietnam, in Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, it's a tropics, a tropical climate that people, you know, go to uh, take a nap at noon time, right? And so on, you know, like there are these uh, practices and, and also the, the, the climate uh, allows, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, an easy environment uh, in which you can easily find food, uh, grow food, you know, food. And so you, so the pressure is not, too much on you to you know kind of work really hard and so so there have been scholars who made that argument and once i used that book for my class on uh, the political economy of east asia 
students judge me, you know, judge the book as being racist, you know, like that kind of argument. Uh, but 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 uh, it's a it's a it's a common impression, and there may be some truth in it, you know, in terms of the differences in the climate, uh, creating different culture and people. And so on. So that's why I say I would say that you know the baseline for South Vietnamese society would be like Thailand or Indonesia. And if they had worked harder, you know, if they had worked harder, if they had, you know, if the civil society had struggled a lot more, and if the government had, you know, worked harder, then you know we we also you know came many South Vietnamese get, came from the north, right? I mean they they also absorbed Chinese culture to some extent. Uh, they 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 could have made uh, you know um, something like a Singaporean society or or Taiwanese or or, or Korean society you know uh, society so that that's uh, that get the uh, uh, the the highest they can they can reach but uh, if not then they can just be like Thailand or Indonesia yeah like simple minds like me lay laymen like me would make these. Uh, ridiculous arguments about you know the temper the, the the temperature the climate because there's a culture of compromise with in I mean if you think about Mexico same thing right and you you go north and the colder climates you have to survive you have to do things a certain way in order to to get ahead and I've been we have this discussion on the podcast all the time East Coast Vietnamese and West Coast Vietnamese it's just two different ways of looking at life I I and I'm making really crude generalities and i and i'm i admit that but i i oftentimes run into east coast vietnamese who are just harder working they just are more serious about the work that they do versus sometimes on the west coast and i think the west coast is uh you know uh, vietnamese are are much more laid back especially in southern california we're just much more laid back we we love money and we think about money and but the east coast has a separate culture uh the vietnamese east coast have a separate culture when it comes to the way they view uh intellectual pursuits yeah i mean when I f- we first came here to the u.s uh i lived in minnesota for four years right and that's when i kind of you know uh went back to school and studied very hard uh, and so on i you know keep thinking you know if i had been to california in southern california instead of minnesota you know what my future would, must have been different right <laughs> and then after minnesota i went to live in new jersey for a couple of years and then massachusetts for a year then then california so i i do know you know what you're talking about in terms of you know the the different cultures in the us and how vietnamese american also you know kind of came to be affected by by that shaped by by the society that they live in which is you know totally true uh and and uh, and uh, you know I, I i i totally agree with you about that yeah and and as people who discuss these things right uh, i i studied anthropology at usc uh that was my major and so we are sort of like in this mode of coming up with ethnographies or putting together ethnographic works and interviewing and finding and discovering patterns. But like your students said, the arguments sometimes can be crossed over into the lines of racism. So how do we mitigate this idea of these general blocks of culture and society versus hard empirical science? I mean, we need to make some sort of distinctions about the East Coast Vietnamese, West Coast Vietnamese, or North and South Vietnamese. We we, we need to make these generalities to make our theories work. But 
how do we as you know regular people when we have these ideas not be accused of racism or what uh, what you know how do we yeah. talk about these things intelligently without making these general generalities seem you know simplistic yeah uh, uh, first you know we have to be careful when we talk about you know big groups of people right uh, to to use the the crude generalizations that that you mentioned but as also you know for people who accuse of other people of being racist i think they need to be also be to uh, to be uh, be less accusatory i mean to be to be more uh, forgiving uh, you know like depending on the context and the and the uh, and, and the attitude of the you know the person who speaks something uh, i we've had problems like that in you know college all the time um and i've been accused uh, of uh, being uh, whatever you know sexist and racist uh by not speaking not intervening when some student in my class was using the word uh, retarded mm -hmm. you know we were teaching a, a, i was teaching a course on violence and the state right and we used uh, there, there was a week when we talked about nazi germany and the United Germany, they had, uh, you know, they, they put all the, retard, the retarded the kids in a camp, right? Uh, and, and, and so that term came up, you know, when a student mentioned it and I didn't intervene because I didn't catch it in time or, you know, like I, I didn't, it was a, a term in the book, right? So, so it, it was okay. To, but then a student went to the Title IX office and complained. And my name has been listed there as uh, together with the other sex offenders and so on. So, so I, I knew about that when a lawyer contacted the university for a list of you know complaints against uh, you know sexist or, or, or sexual harassing people and so on. And, and my name was included in there too. Uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's tough uh, today. You know, like given the kind of climate. Uh, and and so I, I would uh, ask people, you know, like on the one hand, be careful with what you speak. And on the other hand, you know, for the other people who like to accuse people of being this or that, you know, being more forgiving. Mm. Yeah. And I, I felt that at the conference, you know, that that sort of vibe and that energy of being able to come in and just have these conversations and and be friendly towards each other and loving and, and kind in, in our discussion. It was a, it was evident in, in the conference that we were at. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what that's what we try to to make happen. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you about this idea of the French coming in uh and spending all those years colonizing and and having an effect on our people. Uh I often think of it as uh, there were good things and there were very bad things uh, that were taking shape. But as a political scientist and somebody who studies the systems of, of governing and the kind of the buildup of the state, what do you think, what is your opinion about the French, the French's imprint on our culture? As as somebody who studies this, do you have uh, a, a, a sentiment about if it was a good thing or a bad thing for the people of Vietnam? How do you feel that on a historical level? Because I always think about this question um, as I'm growing up. You, you know, there's so many beautiful things about it and there's so many bad things about it. But I always wanted to know from a political science, 
are we better off uh, having the French come in? Well, that's another another uh, very controversial topic that you put me in. <laughs> but, I'm sorry, uh, just... No, no. Uh, I mean, as scholars, we we have to deal with these uh, these issues. Uh, and uh, my my answer is that uh, French colonization was uh, essentially and in political terms and cultural terms and uh, social terms, it was forced modernization. Right? It was modernization by force. So force coming from outside took over the government, uh, got rid of you know the old government and a lot of you know things associated with it you know from the use of Chinese characters right in official communication, to the other policies uh, to keep, you know, people in the villages and so on. So, so the French came in and kind of, you know, liberated society in that sense, you know, like bringing kind of modern ideas about the state, about the nation, about government, about, uh, about the economy uh, and so on uh, to, uh, to Vietnamese society uh, who uh, was kept ignorant by the rulers at the time. So we should not be nice to the kings and queens and royalty families that ruled Vietnam before the French came, right? They they were mm-hmm. Vietnamese, but then they also, you know, um, they, they were also keeping Vietnamese ignorant by not opening the country to modernization, you know, like as, you know, the, the, the rulers of Thailand did, right, Siam at the time, you know, rulers of Siam did, and, or, Jap- or Japan, right, so rulers of Japan and Siam did open their countries up and modernize their country, uh, which make their country, be, uh, you know, strong, but, but the rulers of Vietnam and other, you know, most other, you know, Asian uh, mm-hmm. societies failed to do that. And that that was that was their the mistake, and and we should not be nice to them uh, when we even when we talk about the French colonizing us and exploiting us and oppressing us, you know, like would 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 they have been better, you know, under the their their own rulers, and and if we think of you know uh, the people who took over from the French, uh, uh, especially the communist regime. You know, we they they still don't allow they they still to, until today don't allow private uh, press, right? Private media, whereas you know it was them who demanded the French to uh, to 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 give the Vietnamese the you know the freedom of speech uh, and the freedom of the press. But then they have not after you know seventy years of you know ruling over the country still denied the Vietnamese the that right to have a free press. You know, so that 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 so so we, we we should be critical of the French, but we also should be critical of the Vietnamese rulers before them and after them as well. That that's such a um, that's such a fair and balanced uh, perspective because uh, you know I've been doing this for a few years and I haven't heard anybody really call out the rulers that that were there before the French came in, and uh, I think that's very that's very fair because when I think about growing up Vietnamese Catholic. I get really upset and I, I'm sometimes I'm very angry about, you know, how can my mom and dad buy into a religion wholesale that was brought in by another country that before we didn't have that existing, we had Buddhism. And how could you force this 
colonizing force onto your children and believe it wholesale, believe it wholeheartedly that this is the truth when it was brought into your country just, you know, 150 years ago. And so I, I live with this sentiment that, you know, we have this like uh, imported way of believing in spirituality that is mm. just not fair. Mm. I totally understand that. But I, I think religion can be a liberating force for, you know, people in such, you know, poor and oppressed society as, you know, in Vietnam before the French came. And, you know, I also compare, you know, Vietnam and Korea uh, at the time, you know, during the colonial period. And, and it's interesting that, you know, in Korea, Protestantism, right, Protestantism uh, was considered liberating. And, and a lot of Korean, uh, you know, uh, fighters for independence were Protestant. And because and, and in Vietnam, it's uh, it's unfortunate association between Catholic Catholicism and the French, right? But in Korea, the the Americans brought introduced a Protestantism, uh, and the the Koreans used that against the Japanese who were not Protestant, right? So so religion can be a liberating force, uh, and and the association with the French and Catholicism is unfortunate. But but uh, Catholicism, if we understand it, and if you understand your parents and your grandparents and so on more, then you you would you would uh, you 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 may think of of Catholicism as a liberating force for them at the time in that context, uh, and so 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 they came to believe it, and, and they spread the re the belief to you, uh, still in that good spirit. Uh, even though, you know, like from our perspective today, we may, you know, we may associate Catholicism with the French. Uh, but then there have been, you know, like new scholarship showing that, no, uh, that was that was not really true. That was just, you know, part of it. You know, there were some priests who were trying to push for French colonization. But there also were other priests, you know, other Catholic priests who were sincerely believing in helping Vietnamese uh, society out of their, 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 their situation at the time, helping to, you know, giving them the hope in the future and, you know, offering them education, offering them opportunities. And I'm not Catholic, you know, I'm not saying good thing about Catholics, Catholics because I'm, I'm a Buddhist, right? I'm not Catholic. So here's, you know, from the new scholarship uh, talking about, about the, the positive role of Catholicism. And, and many Catholics uh, play a very prominent role in the liberation movement, independence movement. Yeah. Uh, and not, not, they were not acting as, uh, as uh, lackeys of the French at all. This episode is brought to you by Songkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Songkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Somkai Gin. Somkai Gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Somkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Somkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Somkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam.
again, this is a perspective I have never thought of as well, because I've always felt like it was the lackeys of the French. And but yeah, I, I think it's, you know, point taken. I, I really do. Um, uh, I can see that. And I want to go into this rabbit hole of the difference between because this is something this is the second time this week that I've heard the idea of Protestantism going into countries that have really turned the economies of these countries. Uh, I heard a, a, a news program on NPR uh, this week about the countries that uh, the Protestant religion came into versus other religions that picked up on. And the idea of Protestantism versus Catholicism is there are subtle differences, I think, in the way that the Protestant religion is is set up versus Catholicism. Would you be able to speak on that? Uh, because I think I, you know, today is the first time I've heard of uh, Protestantism coming into South Korea versus Catholicism, and I think the two societies and the way it's structured and has grown um, as a result of the two different Christian religions coming in, making a imprint on the work ethic the way they view um the way they view their morals and 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 business there's all of these implications i don't know if you uh have enough um information to talk about that well um i uh understand what you're talking about but i don't know to, uh, a lot about these uh religions to talk about them uh, in any you know deep way uh i i know you know protestantism the Protestant Church is, you know, less hierarchical, like more open, and uh, and it's uh, it's uh, perhaps it it allows the the believers a more active role in uh, you know pursuing uh, other worldly uh, careers and businesses and so on. But uh, you know, like back in the nineteenth century and early twentieth century, I don't think they were that different. Uh, I mean, in terms of their uh, they are being introduced into these uh, Eastern societies uh, and playing a role uh, uh, of, uh, you know, sometimes uh, against the government, sometimes, you know, on the same uh, side with the government. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a lot more uh, about uh, their interaction with the society and the government than about the individuals, I think. Now, our generation multi-generational uh, existence in the diaspora here uh, outside of vietnam uh, especially here in the us uh, it's factions there's a lot of factions and it it could be generational it could be cultural it could be east coast west coast it could be so many different things that create different perspectives in the diaspora but one thing that is uh, hard to um look away from is the ideas of the flag the 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 yellow flag with the three stripes uh, the transition of the generations that are younger than m myself. I was one of the first born uh, in the right after the war, 75. I was born in November, 75. And I noticed that the young kids in their 20s today, uh, when they're on their iPhones and they are, you know, proud to be Vietnamese, they put the red flag with the yellow star. Uh, this is such a weird time to be alive as a Vietnamese person, especially where I stand. I'm right in the middle of these two sort of like my parents' generation and then the kids are in our 20s. How do we process this going forward? I, is it something that we 
need to focus on or is it eventually i hate to say this but die off because that flag is going to eventually be a red flag and a yellow star and you know what's your perspective on sort of the sentiments that go along with these two flags i was you know 10 years old when the republic collapsed right so i was 10 years old uh, and i had ties to the former government uh, through my father so i understand their loyalty to that flag uh, the deep loyalty and i understand that you know things might have changed you know throughout the post war period but you know the more persecution they suffered from the communist regime the more loyal loyal they they have become to that to that flag right it's not like i, I think their belief in the flag just like or their loyalty to the flag just like any subject that we study as political scientists they evolve they continue to evolve they they not they not some something that's fixed 100% fixed so so i've seen you know i i've lived through the post war years in communist society right and i came to us when i was 25 and i've seen uh, at first you know i don't think that the uh, attachment was the to the flag was that was that obvious uh, in my first years here, like that was in the, the early 1990s. But when the Vietnamese communist government actually was trying to push the U.S. government to ban the flag, you mm -hmm. know, during their visit to the U.S., that's when the community started to organize and try to make that flag official, you know, uh, recognized as the official flag of the Vietnamese American community. So I saw that movement began or was triggered by the Vietnamese government effort in Vietnam trying to, you know, ban that flag. And I was at Berkeley at the time, and I had, you know, Vietnamese officials visiting the, the, the university, and I was sitting uh, at lunch with them, and it was uh, they were expressing their, their, their very strong disagreement, disapproval of the flag. You know, like, why did those uh, Vietnamese uh, here uh, showing those flags? Uh, we, we, we just don't want to see them. They, they just the, 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 the puppet flag and so on. So, so they came here and they actually, they actually insulted us. That prompted many of us into action to protect that flag. So, so back to my argument about the evolution of loyalty. Uh, I think the, the the loyalty may become stronger, may become weaker, but at this point, it has become in many places and to many people, especially the older generation, uh, the symbol of our community. Uh, it, it has become uh, at this point, it, it has become uh, the symbol, and, and and so it's important to recognize and accept and respect the symbol uh, for the sake of the community. I think. Um, even though, you know, for younger generation, they may not have any uh, loyalty to that flag. Uh, they don't even understand, you know, like why that flag is here and so on. But, but, uh, but it's important to respect that as, uh, as the aspiration of the community, as a community symbol. Uh, and uh, I hope the Vietnamese communist government would, you know, uh, be more open, would be uh, good, good, good. Adopt uh, true uh, sincerity, uh, sincere reconciliation with the community. Then, at that point, the the 
the flag would not be that important anymore. Uh, you know, and and uh, also, also in case you know, like the Vietnamese government uh, may collapse and may not exist anymore. You know, the red flag may disappear uh, too. So you know, so you would not. Uh, so I would not be too uh, too worried, too concerned about that flag. I would, I would, you know, uh, take it as as we go. Uh, and you know, if I if I if I if I organize a community event, I, I will have the the flag salutation ceremony. It's it's fine, uh, but if I do it on campus, you know, it's it's not the uh, environment to to. Uh, and then I would tell people that you know, like I I I respect the flag, and you know that. But but that doesn't mean that I have to uh, display it. Uh, you know, everywhere I go, I have to mention it. You know, in every sentence. You know, like. <laughs> That that's not that's not uh, that's not right, right? So I I just like I respect my ancestors, you know. I love my ancestors and respect them, but I don't mention it mention them uh, whenever I speak. So uh, it's the same with the flag. I respect it and 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 I welcome it. Uh, but uh, but you know, like depending on the 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 kind of activities and environment, we if we want uh, an academic open uh, discussion, then we would not. We would not uh, do that, and and it's fine. It's uh, it's uh, the community should accept that as well. That's which is why I'm trying to bring academics to the community so both can understand each other better. You know, I I think that the hard part is the weaponizing of the idea that well, I, it doesn't show up as much in young young generations uh, in the United States, but. I think at the the mid tier, sort of in the forties and fifties, uh, you know, if there's political uh, activity uh, on on just uh, like the Little Saigon uh, American politics level, they weaponize this idea of uh, being a communist or anti-communist, and they weaponize it going both ways. And I think that's the kind of the hard pill to swallow at this point. Yeah. It's mm. like it's not rooted in reality, but it is definitely this flag is weaponized in a, in a certain way that mm. that makes it very uncomfortable for generations like mine to sit and allow that to happen. Because I know the truth is far more could be far more sinister than this symbol of, you know, our parents uh, loyalty, which, you know, it has nothing to do with second generation like me or third generation lives that um that that that's used as a weapon sometimes and i think that that is something that needs to stop yeah i also you know kind of talk to uh, uh the community whenever uh we talk to them uh, to be open to uh you know different ideas and opinions and, and not to try to force you know the older generations ideas and symbols on the young people uh, and 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 I I was able to tell them that you know it would be more effective actually if you just let them choose and some of them may not choose some of them but but you know some of them may choose uh, you know uh, the flag as the symbol as well so it's uh, it just you know uh, we we live in an open and free society we should let that happen and, and not try to weaponize uh, either way like you say yeah yes and and that's a funny point you bring up we live in an open society a free society so why are we sometimes sanctioning our own words and censoring our own community from being able to speak right we if we're living in a true and free society we should be able to say whatever we want and pick whatever we want and do whatever we want but and we, you know of course without it harming anybody but 
we should be able to kind of express freely what our our views are. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes it's it's stymied. It's it's held back uh, in the societies that we live in in the diaspora. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate uh, that you know, like many people carry uh, a heavy heavy baggage, you know, from the past. And and but but uh, you know, like the. I think uh, the younger generation should understand them more and and be forgiving more. I think both sides need to be forgiving more. Uh, the older generation need to you know understand the youth more and uh, you know forgive more for for you know whatever they think or do. Uh, and, and the younger generation should also forgive the, the older generation more for you know their their own belief and so on. Yeah. You know, when I think about the paths to development, societies developing, and we think, you know, I always bring up Korea, South Korea. What does Vietnam need to have in their toolbox for the next 50 years to get to the point where heavy development and infrastructure is happening in Vietnam, both on the government, entertainment, whatever you name, what needs to happen more in your opinion? Yeah, in uh, in my, a talk that I gave uh, a few months ago to a Singaporean audience, uh, I talked about uh, Vietnam wanting to be South Korea, but it has not been able to, uh, you know, perform like South Korea economically, uh, mainly because uh, of the, you know, the first thing is the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy today in Vietnam uh, is re uh, recruited uh, and promoted based on their political loyalties. And political loyalties oftentimes are reduced to family ties. You know, so if you are born of a you know communist officials a family, then you just you know immediately assume to be loyal, right? So and you would get you know uh, promoted in the uh, get recruited and promoted in the bureaucracy without any you know without real uh, ability to contribute anything. So that's a problem with Vietnam. And one thing that Vietnam should do that I advise them to do is to uh, try to to make the bureaucracy at least, you know, some, uh, you know, a meritocracy, right? Uh, ba based on merit, uh, recruited and promoted based on merit and not, uh, not based on political loyalty. You know, of course, you know, like the top level of bureaucracy, you know, you still need, you know, officials loyal to the regime, right? But then, you know, below the you know level of maybe deputy minister, you know, you you need to 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 have people with real ability, right, with with talents and so on, education. So that that's the the first thing that Vietnam uh, needs to do. Uh, the second thing is to get rid of the state-owned uh, sector. So South Korea develop its economy. You know, it 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 rely on the big corporations, right? So uh, big spending or corporations. Uh, uh, in many industries, uh, and like you know, like uh, Samsung, like Hyundai, right? So Vietnam also tried to do the to follow the same strategy, but relying on state-owned companies. That that's a key difference. So the state-owned enterprises in Vietnam have been so so corrupt and inefficient. Uh, that's why Vietnam has never you know, uh, develop its economy very fast like Korea. So that's the second problem. But but the Vietnamese uh, party, Communist Party, they need the state-owned sector to demonstrate their commitment to socialism. You know, socialism, you have to have state-owned sector. You have, uh, you need to have uh, 
state owned uh, uh, the state need to to own public uh, pro- property right so that's that's why they they want to keep the system but that system is not helping vietnam to develop to become a, a dragon or tiger so that's the second thing the bureaucracy is the first thing the state owned sector is the second thing and then the next the final thing is the is the political freedom uh, to a certain extent because you know in south korea even though even under the dictatorship of park chung hee there was some you know freedom of press yeah? there was uh, op- opposition parties there were you know academic freedom in university so you were allowed to study anything except uh except uh maybe communism and uh except criticizing the government but in vietnam you're not allowed to study anything except marxism leninism so it's really a a, a tight um a, a tight uh lock on the mind of, of people keeping keeping them ignorant so so vietnam need to 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 uh to have a, a relative you know a good uh some 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 degree of press freedom some degree of academic freedom some degree of freedom of expression and organization then then it it can it can become a south korea the hope that i have for vietnam based on what you just answered is a few things i remember in the 90s going to college with a few of con chao cha i guess mm. that's what we call it or con quốc cán bộ or all of these government kids that were coming to the united states that were studying amongst us and a few short years later after getting their masters or phd they go right back to vietnam and they started these venture capital firms they became leaders in different sectors so that's hope number one. number two, universities like fulbright university who really stress and preach academic freedom uh even if they don't really knock that out of the park at least there's conversation behind academic freedom right. that's two things and the third thing is obviously the internet and the freedom to browse sort of freely with youtube videos and you know, I mean, they can control as much as they want, but I mean, it's still going to seep out this idea of governments needing to be more open-minded. And I think the youth of Vietnam eventually will see the the the, the openness of, of the West. So all of these things are kind of like in working in parallel with each other. And I think it, to some degree it's it's working, but why, why is it why is it so heavily, how is it so heavily blocked with, in the last 20, 30 years, we know that there's an influx of all of these change agents, but why hasn't it flipped yet? Why is, what does it need to, to, to flip over? Uh, and I'm not saying a full democracy like the US, but a little bit more, you know, even like in movies, why can't we have lifted the censorship? Why can't they just see that we just need to be able to freely express what we need to, to make the, the society a better place. What's the hold? What do you think culturally is holding the, 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 the people or the gatekeepers in control of entertainment, politics, everything? What is holding them back as a society from fully opening up? It's the need to protect the power and the privileges of the regime and their officials. Uh, that's what what's holding back uh, in my analysis and i've given talks in many places about this uh so uh the regime uh care mostly uh, and at the highest order priority is its own security and that's why it spent a lot you know on the police 
to uh to uh you know survey the population to keep control of society and the situation has become worse in the last 12 years uh, under Nguyễn Phú Trọng the current uh, party secretary uh, so and there uh, there are like four there are four uh, police generals in the politburo of 16 uh, you know members so 16 top leaders of of Vietnam four of them you know, kind of develop their career in the police, in the in the Ministry of Public Security, and, and so they, they so the they emphasize uh, regime security over everything else. So they have refused to accept, even though they must allow you know a degree of uh, intellectual freedom, information freedom, because of you know they need to open up Vietnam. They need to keep investment coming in. Uh, and, and they, they need to uh, to uh, to increase the amount of exports uh, to make money and so on. But then at the same time, they they also care about regime security and and they observe society very closely. And whenever they see uh, you know it's getting a bit out of hand, they will they will strike back and and take back the control. Like the degree on press freedom that they. Uh, they call it uh, press uh, press uh, reorganization that they just issued like two years ago that shut down Zing Zing News. Uh, you know, you may you may know Zing yes. News. So it's a quasi private uh, media company, right? Uh, and 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 has been shut down because the party would not accept a private press, and and it 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 let Zing News. Uh, 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 grow in the last few years because of you know the the the, the regulations were not tight enough, and, and so there was there was uh, that there was gap in the in the regulations that Zing News uh, could take advantage of and grow as a quasi uh, private media. But now that you know it it uh, it uh, it realized the danger, it it shut down Zing News. So so it's a uh, it's a, a game, you know, a cat and mouse game kind of, you know, the society is always trying to burst out of control, push the envelope uh, in their interaction with, you know, foreign countries and they absorb the information and they, the youth uh, wanted to push uh, the envelopes, but the regime uh, is watching. And whenever they feel like, you know, it, it might endanger their security, they would, they would crack down. You know, this is so dark to hear because I think about China and I think about Russia, I think about Vietnam, I think about all of these autocratic or uh, these places that have these strict controls over the people. Um, how hopeful are you with the world and the development of more openness throughout the world? Because it seems like with the advent of technology, things are kind of getting choked more rather than opening more well i i had the the benefit of living through uh the communist uh period right so 1975 was when it, it was the most powerful right i mean the communist the world communist movement right so it conquered south vietnam defeated the u.s you know afghanistan and other places uh but then it collapsed right 1989 like uh, like only 15 years later who would who would have believed it right so very few political scientists actually predicted the event and everybody thought that oh it, it's going to be there forever right but then it collapsed 
So so that that's where my hope comes from. You know, like you see, you know, the rise of Putin, you see the rise of Xi Jinping, but you know that, you know, uh, they 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 are building their power on oppression, which is kind of against the trend, uh, you know, uh, of of uh, the, of humanity, well, he, of human society. So which is why I, I I still have a lot of hope in you know like their, um, you know. Uh, in 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 the day when when they no longer exist and and they have to uh, they must collapse uh, yeah in, to me that, that's very hopeful but I mean you 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 know we not to get into strain to further but you think of Netanyahu and you think today this is a a a modern you know we're living in modern society. And I don't know the audience where your politics are, but I mean, we could just see how Netanyahu is, is just doing what he wants to do in that part of the world. And I think that there's sort of a lot of Jewish people or Israelis that do not agree with what he's doing. Yeah. And are, mm. there's protests everywhere. But Xi Jinping, Netanyahu, all of these Putin guys, they're they're still doing what they're able to do. And we're mm. in the modern age. Right. Mm. How is this continuing? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's sad, right, to, to see these things happening, uh, like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? Yeah. I mean, who would, who would, you know, imagine someone uh, doing that today, right? Or, or what Xi Jinping has been doing to Hong Kong. Right, or uh, Netanyahu, uh, you know, like his policy uh, in Israel over the years. But I, I think, you know, like it's uh, it's the it's the good thing that I study, uh, you know, political science because I could understand uh, these uh, uh, politicians and and I could understand not only what they are doing right now, but the longer trend. And 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 that's what gave me hope. Like I said, you know, the, in in the longer trend, they're gonna commit excesses, uh, and and they're gonna commit mistakes. Like you know, Putin's invasion of the Ukraine was a huge mistake, and eventually they would they would fall uh, by themselves. And it's not it's not uh, it's not like you know like so so whenever they they do stupid things like you know the invasion of Ukraine, they're gonna. The world's gonna unite against them, as we have seen, and it's the same with Netanyahu too. You know, he's pushed, he's pushing Israeli policy to the extreme, yeah. and he's gonna have to pay the price for that. And hopefully, you know, like not too much uh, bloodshed uh, uh, before the conflict is resolved. But but you know, anytime that that some dictators or some you know misguided politicians are pushing uh, to the extremes, they're gonna have to pay. I think eventually. Yeah, it's hopeful to hear. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Uh, never asked the question, right? Uh, because I I'm just a Vietnamese, uh, so uh, so at the abstract level. Uh, uh, and the more I grow old, the, the uh, you know the, the older I I, I grew, uh, the less chance I ask that question. I think I, I asked that question when I was ju I just arrived in the U.S. and I you know and I oh I look around and then very few people look like me right, and uh, and I I don't speak I didn't speak the language very well at the time and uh, so so I I I was forced to. 
to uh, to think of my Vietnamese-ness a lot more uh, at the time as I was trying to adapt. And I was able to, at some point, decide to move forward and not think about that question anymore. Uh, I think that's when I I, I was able to uh, to move forward uh, uh, and be successful without, uh, you know, um, worrying about myself anymore. Uh, but uh, and as I grew older, I I stopped asking the question. As I become, I feel like I becoming am becoming more Vietnamese over time as I grew older. Uh, even though you know, like I uh, I have you know, live in the U.S. much longer uh, now, you know, compared to when I first came. But somehow, you know, like you get older and, and that's kind of a, a dynamic that you did not uh, expect. Uh, but but it, uh, it's coming back, you know, like the, uh, it, it seems to be something that you, that I tried, me, you know, I tried to bury in my heart when I came here. So I, I, I just told you that, you know, like I made the decision to move forward not asking that question, but actually what I did was to bury my emotions, right? Bury my my own identity, bury my own culture to move forward. Uh, but at this point, they're starting to come back uh, without my uh, realization, you know, or without my intention, you know, like they just kind of, you know, they, they have been hidden for so long, uh, like 30 years in my heart. And now they're kind of, you know, starting to come back uh, slowly. And that's why I became uh, interested uh, and, and I devoted significant energy and time to the studying of the Republic of Vietnam that I kind of, you know, could not have done, you know, when I first came here or when I studied political science and so on. But but now I, I, I feel like I can do it. And that also helped me to release the, the hidden emotions that I buried for so many years uh, uh, to to let 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 me be true to myself a bit more. Can, can you share with me a few of these emotions that you buried? Can you describe it? A lot of it uh, was uh, because I I left Vietnam when I was twenty five, right? So I had a girlfriend. I I was working. I had friends. Uh, so that that was part of it, right? And then when it, I came to the U.S., uh, I felt so lonely. I, I lost uh, everything. Uh, then I didn't understand the new society, and they didn't understand me either. You know, I tried to apply for menial jobs, uh, and I was re- I was rejected. Uh, I did not get any jobs, uh, and so on. So it 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 was uh, there was uh, uh, desperation. There was. Uh, sadness there was uh nostalgia you know about uh what i left behind uh and so on so so many you know complex emotions that that i i had to confront in my first year here i think for me being born here i'm conflicted with that all the time because the memories that you have of being in your homeland for 25 years are tangible memories. They're real memories. They're this real perception of living in that world in reality for 25 years. And then leaving it, you had to kind of purge whatever you came with so you can adapt to a new life. But guys like me are living in this painful copy of a copy. I'm living, you know, 
a copy of my mother and father's memory is being copied to me and explained to me before I ever got to Vietnam for so many, for two decades, first 20 years of my life. And they were telling me what the culture is like and all the family members that would come over to our house. So I'm living for 20 years, my first 20 years as a copy of the copy. So in my podcast, I feel like I'm always trying to disentangle and try to figure out what things mean because they're just all over the place. And there's no grasp of, of reality for me if I'm American or if I'm Vietnamese. And it's a problem, but a beautiful problem for me to have for the rest of my life because the questions will never end. And no matter how much perspective I get from everybody, I, I just never, it just never goes away. I never feel satisfied. It's like, I'm always hungry. Mm. I've never mm. been able to, to fully be satiated. My appetite is not fully recognized ever. And it's a, it's mm. just a weird place to be all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, I understand, you know, the, the trauma or whatever the, the difficulties of your generation and it's uh um, I, and I respect that. I respect those emotions and feelings. And I think you, but uh, based on what on what you said, you seem to have found uh, the values in your position. You know, it's not like okay, I, I you were always uh, uh, having no clue, you know, about life or whatever or the past or the present. You 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 found value in that, which is great. I think that that that's a great thing. Uh, that you can make some sense or value out of your experience, even though it was, like you said, you know, a copy of a copy, but, but, uh, but that was an experience in itself experience being a copy. Right? <laughs> so whereas, you know, for me, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, like I also, you like benefited from my experience in unexpected way. Like, you know, like I wrote the book uh, on Vietnamese communist revolution and uh, developing out of my real experience, like living then, But at the time, we suffer a lot, like 15 years, right? We try to survive, and I don't want to go back to, uh, you know, the memory of that. But, but you know, it was like, you know, we had food for only a week. And we, we, we don't know, you know, how we would survive for another week. And, and we, you know, we were doing everything just to survive the family, uh, a lot of hardship. So, so, but then that benefited me, uh, allowing me to write that book, uh, understanding the Vietnamese revolution from within and not, you know, as an observer, but I lived through that period. I, I, I listened to the propaganda day and night and I, I understood it. I, I felt its strength and its weaknesses that I could talk about in my book, which really kind of, you know, uh, is the strength of the book. So, you know, each of us, uh, the, the point is, you know, have lived through different experiences in the community and uh, and, and it's good that we can find values uh, in, in what we have uh, been through and, and make a contribution to the future generation. So now, you know, if you want, you can read uh, the recent research, you know, including my own research, understand more about Vietnam. Uh, not, you know, based on your, your parents' experience, which may be biased in certain ways, uh, based on your teachers, uh, what, what your teachers have taught you, which also biased in other ways, you know, you could, you could read more research, recent research, which is more balanced and help I, you understand. I know my reasons for reading these things, but what can you say to the audience? Why is this important that we reach back into the history and understand it more? You know, that's true for uh, everything. 
Uh, history is very important to the present, have you understand the present. But then for us, you know, for the Vietnamese American community, yeah. So our history has not been told uh, or has been told from the perspective of the Chinese, the Americans, the Russians, the French, and so on, and not by ourselves. And, and much of it is also told by the North Vietnamese, who are Vietnamese, but then, you know, they're communists and they they were our enemy at some point. And, and, and they had an interest in, you know, kind of uh, portraying us in certain uh, certain uh, ways, right, to, to, to enhance their legitimacy, right? Uh, so 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 our history has been hidden, buried, or erased, or mistold, and and so it's important for 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 my generation, you know, with some good training and knowledge to really kind of bring back the the history, the complex history. It's not like you know we were a paradise or whatever, but but we 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 did make some efforts uh, at improving our lives. And those efforts must be recognized uh, and valued, because they they can give the next generation the pride in in their in their community and their ancestors. So it's uh it's uh that that's why it's important uh, because Vietnam was so much uh the the politics surrounding the Vietnam War was so contentious, and, and that kind of dis- distorted the history in, in a big way. Uh, and only until only now that you know, like uh, do uh, the younger generation of historians uh, are trying to fix that problem. Yeah, because when I think about the history of my grandfather and my father, my grandfather uh, served with the French or for the French, and was killed by the Viet Minh. My mm. father and his brother were both in the Phoenix program for the CIA. Mm. And so when I think about this history, I think about lackeys. Right. Mm, and, mm. and and I know you address this. And so when I dig deep into the history of my family, I feel like we serve the colonizer. We serve the white man that came in. And that is what I'm afflicted. But part of what I'm afflicted with all the time is this weird, impartial history in my own family. And so when I see the, the yellow flag and, you know, mm, and the red mm. flag, these two flags, there's a big conflict for me. Like what side of the. Mm-hmm. What's are we on the right side of history here? And my brother and I often talk about that. We're both uh, members of the U.S. military, former Marines. We so we're third generation <laughs> lackeys, if you will, right? And so when I think about this, there's a part of it is a little bit shameful. And to have somebody like you to come on to really say, well, read the book, read the history. Uh, there's a different history here that you uh might want to investigate that we are not lackeys we are and so that that's the sentiment i often feel yeah um and i appreciate that uh i i i hope more you know kind of your generation and younger generation uh, read our history books uh because we we uh we care about the truth we're not trying to promote any version of truth. Uh, we 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 care about the truth, and we try to to show history in, in all its complexity, uh, and also give a voice to our community, our people who have been whose history has has been totally uh, distorted. So uh, so the, the the like all these terms that you mentioned, you know, like lackeys and puppets, are the terms that our enemy used to describe us, right? And it took me a long time to get rid of get rid my mind rid of those terms as well, 
uh, it's like you know something we, like i said you know i lived for 15 years under communist regime and i had to accept their propaganda and it just you know became sang, sang, sang deeply into yeah. my my mentality my vocabulary and everything so it took me decades to kind of you know slowly get out of that so so i i think it's important for 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 your generation and the younger generation to also kind of read the new scholarship and then if you have questions you know come to talk to us and you know like and discuss them and 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 judge the evidence uh by on its own merits and not relying on the terms that the enemies have used to describe us uh, that 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 just don't get you very far once you when you keep using those terms yeah Thank you so much for your uh, your views and um, your openness to to really talk about these very sensitive subjects. And I hope that um, you will organize another event uh, in the near future because I think it's uh, it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for all sides and many sides to get together to have a dialogue with each other. And uh, I really am thankful and grateful that you you created something like that. Uh, I'm grateful to all of you to to uh, to have come and and participated in the discussion because I I would not have been able to do it without the participants right so I I need the participants in the room to really kind of you know be open minded and 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 to uh, to talk to each other that that's the most important and I'm very happy uh, the way it turned out. I really want to express my uh, desire to do this episode uh, in Vietnamese. So I hope to see you in a few days or a few weeks from now to to um, have the same sort of discussion, but in Vietnamese. Well, I love to. I love to. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you for the offer. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.